sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are amazingly kind. I can't imagine. I get frustrated with one person, and you deal with billions. You deal with those who hate you, and you chose to love some of us. And we would never have come to know you if you hadn't opened our eyes and given us even the faith. I can't imagine your long-suffering and patient nature. And yet I look at the world and it's evil. And we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And yet we know that you wait because you desire more to be saved. And your patience continues. Help us as we look at your word this morning. Give Tom the words to say and us the hearts to receive you. And to, and to hear the things that you want us to hear and how we are to walk in your ways, to have your love. And the one way we'll know we have it is if we love one another the way we're supposed to. Thank you for your son. His love is amazing and endures forever. It's in his name we come. Amen. Good morning. What would you say is the most fervent undistracted, single-minded effort that you have ever witnessed with your own eyes. Personally, I'd have to say it is watching a newborn baby go after his mother's milk. Sometimes it takes a little while, uh, a very painful and frustrating little while for the mother and the baby to get that connection to work the first time. But after that, (laughs) there is no stopping that baby. He's not going to get sidetracked by by some other pursuit, some other train of thought. There is no impurity in his craving. There is nothing else in the mix. There's just that one thing. Not even the game-winning play in Super Bowl L would vie for his attention. He wouldn't know the difference between Peyton Manning and Bing Crosby. But he knows what his mother is good for. And when he's hungry, there's nothing else in his world except that milk. And by the way, yes, I know they did not use the Roman numeral this year for the Super Bowl. They're calling it Super Bowl 50, but who cares? (laughs) In the passage that Jonathan just read, God, through Peter, calls us to that kind of fervency in two different pursuits, but they're not competing pursuits. They are very much linked to one another, so it works out very well. You've all seen photos where a photographer set the depth of field and the focus on his cameras so that only one person in the photo is sharply in focus, and everything behind that person is 
at least a little bit out of focus. That technique serves to fix the attention on that one subject. That's how Peter uses imperative tense verbs throughout this part of the letter. We saw it last week. We're going to see it again today. Everything around the imperatives, the direct commands, is important, but it's slightly out of focus. It is the direct commands that are front and center and that are sharply in focus. In this passage, Peter builds his case around two imperatives. The first in verse 22 of chapter 1 is fervently love. The second in chapter 2 verse 2 and that chapter 2 verse 2 is crave or long for. My outline points then are based on those two commands. Chapter 1 verses 22 to 25 fervently love one another from the heart. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, fervently long for the Word of God. So that's where we're going this morning. Peter's first command is fervently love one another from the heart. But he sets up that command in the first half of verse 22 by looking back to a transformation that has already occurred, already been accomplished in the saints to whom he is writing. That transformation was what made them saints in the first place. And that is that their souls have been purified or cleansed for the love of the brethren. He says they were purified in obedience to the truth. And I believe the obedience to which Peter refers here is his reader's response of faith to the hearing of the gospel by which they came to be children of God. That wording is not unheard of in the Scriptures because in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that his apostleship was to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Now, let me explain why from the context I believe that's the obedience that Peter is referring to here. The last thing he said just before this in verse 21, the last passage is that through Jesus Christ, we are now believers in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave Him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. By our Lord's doing, we came to faith and are now believers in God. Then comes verse 22 where he says, "...having purified your souls in obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren..." Fervently love one another from the heart. In the very next verse, verse 23, he says, Having been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And for those in Asia Minor who received this letter, their identity as believers in God, verse 21, the cleansing of their souls in obedience to the truth, verse 22, and their rebirth by the Word of God, verse 23, all refer to the same accomplished transformation. When Peter refers a few verses later, verse 25, to the Word which was preached, he's talking about the Gospel that they received, that they believed. And what happened to those saints in Asia Minor is the same thing that happened to everyone in this room who now belongs to Jesus Christ through faith. 
when we heard the good news proclaimed and believed it, God did a powerful transforming work in us that purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren. The word purified here speaks of purification from uncleanness or defilement. He's talking about the washing away of our sins. And he puts it in the active mode so that at first glance it sounds like it's something we did. He says, in obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. (laughs) But immediately after speaking of this cleansing from the perspective of our faith, he turns, he turns right away in verse 23 to the true cause, the real source. He says, the seed from which we were born again is the imperishable, living, abiding Word of God. And Peter makes it clear that that miraculous rebirth and renewal were strategic. <laughs> they were purposeful on God's part. He lays out here one of God's most foundational purposes for saving you and cleansing you if you are His child. It's not the only purpose for which He saved you, but it's a really big one. (laughs) He says, Our souls have been cleansed from the defilement of sin for a sincere love of the brethren. God saved you and washed you so that you would love His people with a sincere love. When God ransomed us out of sin at the cost of His own Son's precious imperishable blood, which He talked about in the last passage, He delivered us from both the penalty and the power of sin. He removed the terrible, defiling stain of sin from our very souls. But it wasn't just that condemning stain that He washed away. He also removed the powerful grip of sin on our lives that controlled our thoughts and our words and our actions. Sin no longer defines us and no longer controls us. We have been freed from everything that could keep us from genuinely and fervently loving one another. We have been purified for a sincere love of the brethren. The word translated sincere is the Greek word from which we directly get the English word unhypocritical. The Greek is is, uh, anupokritos. I think the older English translations do do the best job with this word. The old 1901 American Standard, one of my favorite except for the archaic language, and the King James render it unfeigned. You know what unfeigned means? It means unfaked. God saved you to make you a lover of Him and a lover of His people to fulfill in you the two great commandments which, according to Jesus, fulfill all the others. Matthew 22. And that love in both directions, both toward God and toward men, is to be a love unfaked, an unhypocritical love. The actual command here comes in the second half of verse 22. Since God delivered you out of sin and purified your souls for an unhypocritical love of the brethren, therefore, 
fervently love one another from the heart. The love to which we are called is love from the heart. It's not made up. It's not put on. It's from the heart. God has no interest in that which looks like love but isn't. He intends to see in His children the real thing. He intends to see in His children His love. And that love is fervent, unfaked, and selfless. No games, no hidden motives, no pretense of unselfishness, nothing that's different than it actually appears to be. Just WYSIWYG love. What you see is what you get. The Apostle Paul presents a similar command in Romans 12.9 when he says, let love be without hypocrisy. It's the exact same Greek word. And then he proceeds in that passage with what I consider to be a very helpful explanation of what that means, what it looks like to love unhypocritically. And in a nutshell, the rest of Romans 12 tells us that unhypocritical love is about loving each other the way God has loved us. In Christ. It means denying myself. Focusing my attention and energy on the other person's well-being while giving no thought to my own. Not because my well-being is of no consequence to me. But because I know God has my well-being covered. Peter will say at the end of 1 Peter 2 that Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus knew that his Father knew exactly what he was doing. That his Father was going to do all things righteously. And he knew that all the way to the cross. You and I have no knowledge, uh, no reason, excuse me, to fear, to live in fear of being wronged by other people. Not because we won't be wronged by other people, we will. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are sinners. <laughs> they will sin against you, and make no mistake, you will sin against them. But the reason we have no reason at all to fear being on the receiving end of another person's sin or to become bitter or resentful when we have been sinned against is because we, like Joseph, the son of Jacob, can say with great confidence to anyone who sins against us, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You're not the one calling the shots. Unfaked love, then, is not self-protective. It is self-denying. Without any fear, and you know what? Without any risk. Any real risk doesn't mean you won't suffer pain. And it is love that does not make distinctions between people based on what we can get or not get out of a relationship. Because it's never about getting. It is about giving to others the love and compassion and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and forbearance that we have received from God when what we actually deserved 
It was hell. Peter prefaces the second command in this passage, which we'll get to shortly, with a negative exhortation that reveals kind of the other side of this command to fervently love the brethren. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and all envy and slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. Knowing what godly love excludes helps us understand what it includes. <laughs> the word malice, as Peter uses it here, refers to ill will. The desire for harm or evil to befall another person. The word deceit or guile refers to trickery, craftiness designed to hide your true motives and intentions. Hypocrisy, as we've already discussed, is the pretense of love without the reality. Envy is the covetous desire to be like someone else or to have what he has because you are miserably discontented with what you're like and what you have. Slander is speech that defames, that seeks to destroy the reputation of another, usually on the pretense of building up your own reputation. These are all grievous violations of the love that God has poured out toward us, and thus they are grievous violations of the love that He commands us to extend to one another. The love that God both gives and commands is a love that is pure, that is secure in itself, always proceeding from fullness and never from want. It is love that is unwaveringly honest, never vainly flattering, always speaking the truth while at the same time being kind and giving. It is love that binds up wounds and builds up souls. We should all be experts when it comes to knowing all there is to know about the love to which we have been called, the love to, that we have been given. We should know passages like 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 12 very, very well. The love to which God calls every believer, again, is love with no pretense, no fakery, no admixture of the things that violate love. It looks selfless because it is. It looks forgiving because it relentlessly is forgiving. It looks long-suffering because it is long-suffering. It never stops. And it is all of those things because God's love toward us in Jesus Christ is all of those things. Anytime you want to know how far God would have you go to pour out that kind of love toward a brother or sister in Christ or toward a lost person, even one who hates you and who is bent on undoing you, all you have to do is turn your eyes to the cross and you will know all that you need to know. Look at how God demonstrated His love toward you when you were His enemy. Romans 5, 8 through 10. We tend to invest untold mind work and emotional energy and anxiety in the diligent effort to figure out where the lines should be drawn 
when it comes to loving unlovable people that God has placed in our lives, maybe even a husband or a wife. And what we end up with as we pursue figuring out those lines, what we end up with is lino. Love in name only. Love that has more exemptions and deductions than our tax returns. Love with all sorts of hard limits and conditions. Love that violates 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 12, but above all, love that violates the love that Jesus poured out upon us with His blood at the cross. We justify a corrupted version of love which by its very limitations proves not to be love at all. How genuine, how unhypocritical is your love for the saints? How about your love for that redeemed child of God who shares your bed if you are married and if you are married to a believer? How unfaked is your love for her or for him when you assess its genuineness by looking at God's love for you in Jesus Christ? My brother Jim knows what it's like to counsel people who have long lists of qualifications to their love. And I know one of his key answers to them is look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you. Then you'll know what you're supposed to do. It's not rocket science. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Husband, when your wife contemplates your love for her, what comes to her mind? Does she think of all the things that you're not willing to do because they don't fit into your little job description of the king of the castle? Or does she think of how readily you set aside what you'd like to be doing in a given evening to show her genuine love? Wives, when your husband contemplates your love for him, Does he think of how studiously you protect yourself against being hurt by his lapses of judgment, by his sins against you? Or does he think of how kind and forgiving and forbearing your love is to him even when he completely blows it? How many of the people in this room who aren't in your immediate family could actually say that they've ever been on the receiving end of your active love. It probably shouldn't be all of them, but if you've been part of this body for any length of time, it most certainly should be some of them. There is no way that you can love genuinely those whom you don't love actively with your time with your money, with your resources, every resource that God has given you. God saved us and He made us the objects of His compassionate, gracious, forbearing, persevering love. And He poured out that love in our hearts to overflowing so that we would shower it just as unreservedly on one another as He has showered it on us. You know what the cool thing is about the love of God? It never stops coming toward us.
And so we never run out of it to give to somebody else. God commands us to love fervently. That's the same word that Luke used to describe the prayer of Jesus as he prayed and wept in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested, minutes before he was betrayed into the hands of those who would put him to death for our sakes. Luke says, and being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. 1 Peter 4.8 Peter says, Above all, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you think this is important to God? This is so very important. God has made us brothers and sisters forever. You're going to get to spend a lot of time with each other. (laughs) May it cause us to fall on our knees in fear and trembling just to think that we would violate God's love toward us by failing in our love toward one another. This is a sacred assignment. And don't make this about what another person is doing toward you. If you do, you will miss the command entirely. This is about how fervently you love. Peter is setting the stage here for what he's going to say a little later in chapter 2 about our identity, our marvelous identity, as living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood unto God. How do a bunch of stones or bricks become a house? Together. Together. That's why Peter talks about the fervent, genuine love to which God has called us before he talks about our mission in the world. Because the only way that we're going to fulfill that that amazing mission as ambassadors of Jesus Christ is if we do it together. And if we do it together, bound together by what Paul calls the perfect bond. And you know what the perfect bond is in Colossians 3? Love. We are to fervently love as those who have been purified for love. And we are to fervently love as those who have been born again by the living and active Word of God. Verse 23 is not a new sentence. It is every bit as connected with the command to fervently love in verse 22 as the first half of verse 22 is. There are two clauses, and for you linguists, they are participial clauses, one right before the command to fervently love and one right after the command to fervently love. And those two clauses are very similar in their structure. I'll put it up here so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Having been purified for a sincere love of the brethren, having been born again by the living and abiding Word of God, fervently love one another from the heart. 
because of what God has made true of you, fervently love one another. The spiritual life by which you were made able to love was given to you through the living and abiding Word of God. That's how you were reborn. The Holy Spirit, working through His Word that He wrote through the prophets and apostles, gave you life. That Word is the seed from which your new life came into being. That shouldn't surprise you too much. Look around you. (laughs) Go outside and look around. And if you break everything down to the raw materials, how much of what you see came into being because God spoke? All of it. Go back to Genesis 1. The Word of God has always been astoundingly powerful. In verses 24 and 25, Peter says that the Word from which your spiritual life came into being is the same Word of which the prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 40 when he declared, For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, (laughs) but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The source of your fervent love for the brethren is the same as the source of your imperishable life. It is the the alive and abiding Word of God. By the living and active Word of God, you are not just made alive, you are equipped to live and to love. And that's where Peter's going to go next. Even as he was presenting and expounding on that first command to fervently love the brethren from the heart, he was setting up his case for the second command. To fervently long for the Word of God. In the first part of the passage, when Peter referred to the Word, his focus was on the Gospel. But he is certainly not saying that it is only the kernel of the Gospel message that is qualified to be called the imperishable, living, abiding Word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, how much of God's Word does Paul say is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How much of it? All of it. In Peter's second epistle, he writes that the, he says the men who wrote the Scriptures were born along like the wind bears along the sails of a ship and they spoke from God. The words of Scripture are the work of the Holy Spirit and are supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit both to make dead men alive and to equip live men to live unto God. At the beginning of chapter 2, Peter uses another vivid word picture here in 1 Peter 2 to tell us How it is that we were born, we who were born through the Word of God, now grow. And the metaphor, of course, is that of a newborn baby craving his mother's milk. The phrase that the New American Standard translates as the pure milk of the Word doesn't actually include the word word in the original. 
but the Word of God is most certainly what Peter is talking about. The word therefore in chapter 2 verse 1 is there for a reason. It is pointing back to what Peter just said about the eternally abiding nature of the Word of God, which he declared to be imperishable and alive. It was through that Word that we came to have life. It was through that Word that we have been cleansed to fervently love the brethren. Therefore, Peter says, putting aside everything that violates the love of God, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter's emphasis here is strongly on that positive command to long for the Word, not on, the, not on what you put aside. His exhortation to, put, to set aside all of the sinful actions that violate love is clear. It's clearly important. But it is just as clearly not his primary focus. The focus is on his command to long for the pure milk of the word. Now, why not emphasize both, the negative and the positive, equally? Well, it's because, as you will find over and over throughout the Bible, practical righteousness is never merely about what you stop doing. It is about the far superior things that you start doing and keep doing that replace and push far away from you all that does not belong in the life of the child of God. We must put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. We must drive those things away. But nothing will chase them out of your life as decisively as a fervent longing for the pure milk of God's Word. Nothing. The word pure in chapter 2, verse 2, means unadulterated. You know what unadulterated means? It means there's nothing else in it. No high fructose corn syrup. No mono or diglycerides. Not even chocolate. Just pure, unadulterated, untainted, unmodified, undiluted milk. Peter says to us, No, no, Peter commands us like newborn babes long for that milk. The unadulterated milk of the Word. Because that is how you grow up. Peter was a fisherman before Jesus called him his disciple. He was not a priest or a rabbi. And yet Peter readily quotes from the Pentateuch, the Psalms, the major prophets, and the minor prophets in this five-chapter letter. This fisherman knew the Scriptures. Common men and women who had no access to the Word of God except through the verbal proclamation of it in the synagogues and in conversations with one another knew the Scriptures. Most of you who are here have had ready access to the whole Bible since long before you were saved. Many of you have at least two or three translations of the Bible on your cell phone. Do you know the Scriptures? Prophets and apostles died to give you the words of God. Do you know them? 
And do you understand that the whole point of knowing them is to know God Himself? The black marks on these pages are just symbols. There's nothing sacred about those marks or the paper on which they are printed. But beloved, those marks represent the words of God through which the Holy Spirit reveals to us the mind of God, the way of God, and the plans of God so that we may know God, the person. Alistair Begg in his sermon on this passage says, I cannot profess an allegiance to the Scriptures unless I have displayed an allegiance to the Lord of the Scriptures, and I cannot profess to love the Lord Jesus unless within my heart there is a love for His Word. For when I come to the Word of the Lord, there I meet the Lord of the Word. In John 5, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. These testify of Me! And He was talking about the Old Testament just like he was in his conversation with two of his disciples in Luke 24, as they walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus after he was raised from the dead. In verses 26 and 27 of that chapter, Jesus said to those two disciples, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And He's saying, that's what the Old Testament said had to happen. And He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. All the prophets, all the Scriptures, Moses and all the rest. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of the Word of God through the prophets and apostles so that the result is unadulterated. It is the words of God. And He did this in order to reveal to us Himself on His terms, not on on ours. As Jesus so wonderfully declared, it is by beholding the Son that we most clearly see the Father. But for us who weren't here to see Jesus face to face when He came the first time, the purest and the most indispensable and the only unadulterated way that we behold the Son is through the written Word. Which according to Jesus Himself is about Him from cover to cover. Since the point of the written Word is to show us God Himself, that means that a purely academic approach to the Scriptures is a pointless waste of time. Is there anything academic, beloved, about a newborn baby's longing for his mother's milk? Does he wish he could see the nutritional analysis so he could make his own determination about whether this is really his best food option? Does he feel ambivalent about whether or not it really makes sense to go after this stuff with so much energy and zeal? No. His world is very small. And as far as he is concerned, this is the only food that exists in the whole world. (laughs) 
It's the biggest no-brainer that he will ever experience. There's nothing academic about it. Reading and even diligently studying the Bible will not in and of itself have any favorable impact on a person. I've met men who know chapter and verse better than most Christians, but their great knowledge of the Bible seems to serve only to ensure their condemnation. Because they have no personal knowledge of nor desire to know the Christ of the Bible. But if you come, if you come with humility to the Word of the Lord in order to behold the Lord of the Word, to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to Him so that you will know Him, then I promise you on the authority of Jesus Himself, you will not be disappointed. Because it is these Scriptures, all of them, that speak of Him. Do you want to know Him? This is where you'll find Him. Do you want to know the Savior of mankind, the promised King of kings, the One who is the perfect expression of both God and man, the One who is the point of all of human history? You want to know Him? This is where you'll find Him. Where you'll behold Him and meet with Him and come to know Him and love Him and trust Him and obey Him. I am not saying that obedience is automatic for those who spend time in the Word. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if you come to the Scriptures to meet the Lord of glory, His Word which goes forth from His mouth will not return to Him void without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. And the purpose for which He sent it is so that you would know Him and love Him and trust Him and obey Him. 1 Peter 2.2 is a direct command to all of God's people. Peter does not say, Christians are all like newborn babies who crave the pure milk of the Word. So they're all getting well fed and they're all growing to maturity very nicely. No. He says Christians crave the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow. If you don't want to grow up, if you're fine with being stagnant in your faith and obedience, if you enjoy being discontented, if you care only to be marginally useful to God or maybe mostly useless or maybe functionally dead, fine. Go through your days treating the Word of God like you can take it or leave it. But if you want to grow up, if you want to be powerfully useful to God to advance the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, then guess what? You must be as addicted to the Word of God as a newborn baby is to his mother's milk. And friends, that's an addiction. It's an addiction with withdrawals when you withhold the object of it. You want to know how loud your newborn baby can get? Just delay the next meal. This is not about checking one of the obligatory spiritual disciplines off of your daily Christian list. That's legalism. This is life. This is your necessary food. This isn't a cute metaphor about babies. This is what made you alive 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is what keeps you vitally, usefully alive today and tomorrow and every day after that until Jesus comes back and you stand in His presence spotless forever. Walking with God has never fundamentally been about what we know. It has never been about how much we know. It has been about knowing God personally. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, that they may know Thee, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That's real life. You can't have it if you don't come to know God. And you cannot know God and remain in that personal, pervasive, transforming knowledge unless you seek Him out in His Word as habitually, as persistently, as fervently as a newborn baby seeks his mother's milk. I'm going to stop there, but before I pray, I'm going to let you know that I, I'm going to take the liber- liberty of devoting one more message next week to this issue of the sufficiency and importance of the Word of God. We're going to explore next time what it looks like for the pure milk of the Word to long for the pure milk of the Word in an age in which we have Bibles running out our ears and yet we are at an all-time low when it comes to biblical literacy and we are fading fast. We'll consider next week the critical connection between personally knowing the Word and worshiping God together the way God intended. We'll consider why the Word of Christ must richly dwell within us individually in order for us to do church the way God says we are to do church. I hope, I haven't talked to Dan, but I hope the youth can be here next time. I hope this body will be here next time. It still amazes me, guys, that on the Sundays when we fill this place, there are very few visitors here. And on the Sundays when it's very sparsely populated, it's not because it's just the, it's just the regulars. We are sporadic. Let me pray. Father, you have given to us, you've given to us something that this world can't even conceive of. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not even entered the hearts of man. All that you have prepared for those who love you, you have revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And you have done so by combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words and you have you have given us those words through the prophets and apostles who laid down their lives to bring them to us. And you have made yourself known to us through this book Father, we don't worship the book. We worship the Lord of the Word. We pray, Father, that we may, we may not be complacent, that we may not be stagnant, that we will never be satisfied with how much we know of You. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.